Hi, and thank you so much for listening to Pivotal Moment. I'm your host, Nikita Frosted. Here on Pivotal Moment, we talk to people in music, news, and entertainment about the moment that changed it all. The moment that took them from where they were to where they wanted to be. And today, I am so excited to have ESPN's Rob King on the show with us today. Rob King is the Senior Vice President of Original Content, News Gathering, and Digital Media for ESPN. In this role, King has responsibility for ESPN's entire portfolio of news gathering and storytelling assets across television, digital, and print, including the ESPN app, ESPN.com, ESPN the magazine, ESPN Fantasy, ESPN FC, ESPNW, The Undefeated, and 538. <laughs> Rob also oversees ESPN Films, 30 for 30, Outside the Lines, E60, the Cross-Platform Features Unit, and ESPN's editorial board. King joined ESPN in 2004 and prior to that was Senior Vice President of Sports Center and News and oversaw all global and digital content. Rob is actually one of the people who helped me in the very early stages of my sports journalism career to provide insight and real feedback on the industry. And his leadership continues to guide the careers of so many folks at ESPN and in the sports world in general. His vision guides ESPN toward bigger, better, and greater. Thank you, Rob King, for being a guest and welcome to Pivotal Moments. On the show today, King talks about pivotal moments in his life, but first he offers valuable career advice on how to stand out for the right reasons for the job you really want. You talked about finding a job and that it's not about you or your resume. It's about solving a problem. You talked about a young lady with the QR code on her resume or on a sheet of paper, which was her resume. Can you talk about that? Yeah, the point I was trying to make was that when you see a job posting, uh, that should be your first clue that the posting is a doorway into learning more about what the specific problem the hiring manager is trying to solve. And that means you've got to start doing your research to present yourself as the solution to that problem. So the story that you're referring to went something like this. We had been in the media talking about our awareness that consumption of media on mobile devices was going to soon outstrip consumption of media on desktop devices, and so that we were taking a mobile-first approach to how we were going to publish and present our content. And we were very serious about that. We were diving really hard into refining our apps, and it was really mobile-first, mobile-first, mobile-first. So we had an opening in our digital team, and this candidate walked in, and she put a sheet of paper on my desk, and the only thing that was on the piece of paper was a QR code. So I had to pull out my phone to open up all of her credentials, which included written work, videos she'd produced, but she knew that in order to really capture my attention, she was going to have to engage me through some sort of mobile interaction, and I just thought that was genius. And in the end, we didn't get her. She took a job at another no digital native site. Yeah, we didn't get her. <laughs> what? She was too, she had her act two together and she had her <laughs> choice of things she wanted to do and we weren't her first choice. Um, it was the most impressive thing I'd ever seen just in terms of somebody really understanding what the opportunity looked like and how to present herself as the perfect solution to that opportunity. And I look, I say to all, people all the time, you know, we blindly apply to jobs on job boards that look great, but it's really a matter of doing the kind of research into any company, mm -hmm. any division, any hiring manager, 
all of that information is available if you do the right research, um, particularly in the digital space, to really figure out what you need to say when somebody says to themselves or they say aloud to you, how are you going to fix what I need fixed? Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, for people doing job searches in this generation, they have a much easier time than I did when I was in my 20s. In my 20s, we didn't really even have much of an internet to work with. And all your research had to be conducted by phone or by reading periodicals that came out once or twice a year. And you just didn't have as much access to real-time information as you do now. Is that when you were in Danville, Rob, when you said you were there for a year, two weeks, and three days in Danville? Well, it was even before that. It was when I was at Penn State, before I, that, the year I was at State before I went to Danville. But, you know, yeah, I mean, I, when I was at Penn State, I applied to 70 newspapers wow. as an editorial cartoonist. And I basically sent blind submissions to 70 managing editors across the country without any sense of whether they were hiring for a cartoonist, without any sense of what the news stories were in their respective markets, without any sense of whether the newspaper had my political bent. I just thought, oh, you know, this is a medium-sized newspaper that might give me a shot, and I Mm -hmm. applied kind of cold turkey. That's not how it works these days. You have to be much more strategic about how you present yourself. And speaking about strategy, now that things are multi-layered and multi-platform in this digital space, how does storytelling and journalists who are storytellers adapt to that? Well, I think there are a couple of ways. I think the first thing is you have to consume the content in its native state and really kind of understand it. So, you know, there are a lot of people who would like to do a podcast, but in my view, anyway, the most successful podcasts dwell on kind of storytelling. They're not just in, mm-hmm. not just interviewing. They're not just chatting. They get interesting people on to tell stories and take you someplace. And you learn that if you spend enough time listening to the best podcasts as opposed to just diving in because there are tools that allow you to make interesting audio. You know, by the same token, if you're going to be a writer, you got to read a ton of great writing and you got to read a ton of bad writing and you have to read <laughs> professionals as well as sort of newer writers and you have to work hard to figure out your own voice. Yeah. You have to write a lot of bad stuff. The good thing about getting all of your early bad writing out is that, you know, the more you do it, the more feedback you can generate and the more you can learn about who you really are. And, you know, you have these platforms like Medium and other places mm-hmm. where you can actually write and publish in a way that looks and feels professional. And so it gives you at least that a bit of a head start where you're kind of on a level playing field with other people in the space. But then ultimately you are learning based on what you produce and how your audience responds to how you produce. And the same is true for engaging in the social space and the same is true for creating video or music. I tell people all the time, you know, my 14-year-old son's probably got stuff on SoundCloud that I haven't heard yet. Mm -hmm. But that is a forum for people to create something, share it, and learn. Again, I go back to my days in the dark ages of trying to get a job. <laughs> there were no there were no avenues to produce cartoons where people would see cartoons when I wanted to be a cartoonist other than getting published. And that's just yeah. not the world now. Now there's, there's so much ability for people to see your work. So yeah. the end result of any gig will always be when a hiring manager sees that you are capable of producing finished product, right? Not right. just aspiring to do it, but what does it look like if I give you the opportunity to make something? What would you make? And so I think anybody, particularly if somebody is really trying to show that they are a multifaceted storyteller, mm-hmm. somebody who's comfortable across a lot of platforms, well, I mean, you know, any resume that you submit should have links so that somebody can spend time with the content that you produced across all of those forms and make a determination as to whether or not you got the goods. 
So when you're talking about the goods that you have and the goods that you've developed over a career, if you're transferring, as many folks kind of do as they add on to their career in different segments, how do you, and you were in newspapers originally, how do you transfer skill sets into your next opportunity? I think a lot of it gets down to just storytelling and communicating and then staying open. So the best storytellers, the best writers literally keep their ears and eyes open. Um, the best storytellers spend a lot of time paying attention to detail and they spend a lot of time listening. And when you're in any kind of professional environment, the degree to which you listen and communicate is the degree to which opportunities open up. I spent a lot of time as a visual journalist and then made a transition into working with writers and other editors about nine or ten years into my career and just treated all of those transitions as an opportunity to learn and to embrace what I didn't know, but also to be prepared to share what I did know. Um, you know fortunately for me, I, I know storytelling both in terms of visuals and in terms of text, mm -hmm. and uh, there's always ways you can learn. I also tell people all the time, regardless of where you start or what you're doing, if you mentally unpack rather than have part of your brain sort of fixed on where you want to go next, if you're like really present with the folks you're working with and really listening to what's going on around you, you can hear opportunities. You can sense opportunities. You can identify things that you need to know more about. Um, this is a world in which if you reach out to anybody across any industry, without looking for an ultimate yes or no, but just a few minutes of time, some advice, yeah. a chance to share some appreciation, you can gain a lot of access to what people know and what they can teach you. Every time I finish a book that I really like now, mm -hmm. I actually find the author on Twitter and send a ah, note. I'm really like nice. 35 for 35 hearing back from the authors within the next day oh, wow. because that kind of interaction really matters. It's a real connection yeah. and you never know how it turns into a question that can be answered. So I think that particularly as we try to stay flexible as, you know, what is considered media changes over time. We really do need to listen to our audiences, need to pay attention to our own consumption patterns. We need to produce where we consume. Like, you know, mm -hmm. I'll have somebody come and say, boy, I would love to write for ESPN.com. I'm like, great. What's the last time you wrote something? Like, <laughs> uh, you know, that doesn't, right. that doesn't inspire a lot of right. confidence, you know. But I also have people who've been sending me their reels, their video reels for years and years. And it's cool when you actually see improvement or when you see something kind of differentiated and you can encourage folks to pursue that. Because ultimately, what you're going to try to arrive at is a job that feels authentically like yourself, not a role you're trying to play, not some character you're trying to develop. It's got to, when you're ultimately yourself, that's when you've arrived. Right. Um, I always think about Stuart Scott, you know, he was mm. unapologetically himself. Yes. But if you saw his audition tapes from when he was in Orlando, you'd bust oh out Oh my laughing, gosh, you know? that would be great. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen those. But, you know, but he found his path and he held yeah. true. Once he found himself, he held true. And, you know, one of the most successful sure. journalists I've ever been around. Um, and I think that if you're kind of open to that journey, if you're open to like asking people about things you don't know about and trying to learn more and experimenting and sharing your work out publicly and taking the feedback and trying to get better, there's a path for people to find who they authentically are in this business. And one of the stories about being authentic that I found really, really interesting, you talked about let Ricardo touch the ball. Can you tell us about that story? Because that was a great story. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I'm not really sure how how much he's going to love me telling this oh, story. Oh, okay. My man, Ricardo Grandison, is somebody I went to Wesleyan University with, and we were on the basketball team. 
And when Ricardo was on the squad, he didn't get a lot of run. You know, he generally kind of like was a member of the team, practiced as hard as anybody else, warmed up as much as anybody else, but he didn't really see a lot of light on the court. So uh, we had this one game at Connecticut College where on a certain play late in the game, I was going to the basket and I got undercut pretty badly. Cheap shot hurt my shoulder. In fact, my shoulder was dislocated. I felt it kind of slip out and I was in a ton of pain. I jumped up like I was, you know, <laughs> going to do something about it. But I realized, oh man, I'm jacked up. Let me just like take a knee, right? The trainers came out and they brought me to the sideline and, you know, I'm sitting down at the end of the bench and like, you know, trainers kind of checking me out and giving me ice and everything. And Ricardo was down at the end of the bench next to me and he's like, yo, Rob, man, like, you should have stole on that cat. You should just popped him upside the head. And I was like, I don't know, man. I'm mad. You know, I think about it, but I don't think I could have done it. You know, I don't know what good that would have done. He said, good. I could have run out on the floor and then I could have touched the ball. <laughs> the point there really is like when you're in a position of any kind of ability to affect other folks, yes. it's really nice to be able to set it up so that somebody else can benefit from whatever position of, of advantage you have. I tell people as much as possible, like, especially folks who are who are leaders, that in many ways we're only in this position and judged by how we do by how others do. And I actually do spend a lot of time kind of wandering around our newsroom, which is a big, beautiful, open newsroom with a lot of natural light and big glass offices. And I spend time seeing who gets to sit in an office and who's sitting at the head of the table and what does the collection of people sitting around the table look like and how many people are speaking and you know, we, we've turned our walls into something of a living gallery of work we have in progress, and we've created a show and tell so that people can see things that are in progress, and everybody gets to talk about their work, whether oh, you're wow. kind of the top editor or whether you're a new designer who's got some funky project going on. And that genuinely is my favorite part of this job, which is just, you know, you get to see people shine. And so that's what Let Ricardo Touch the Ball is about. It's like, you know, if, you, if you're in a position to help somebody and let them succeed, do it. That's a great story. And it makes so much sense. And I want to ask you about your pivotal moment, since that's the name of the podcast. And there are three people that you mentioned that I have read about when you were talking about moments in your life. And I don't know if you can pick out one of those three that made the most difference, but you mentioned Wendy Ross, Alice Bonner, and Amanda Bennett. Is one out of those three the most uh, pivotal for you in terms of where you are? Or is it someone in something totally different? Well, I mean, my parents are the most pivotal folks in my life for sure. But okay. I mean, the three of them are, they came in interesting parts of my life. I mean, yeah. Wendy Ross showed up when I was, I think, 22, working uh, sorting mail at the Washington Post, where she assured me that I would be three or four people between the time I was 22 and 30. You know, she said, you're going to fall in and out of love. You're going to have different cars. You're going to have different pets. There's music you're listening to now that you won't like at 30. There's clothes you're wearing now that you'll be embarrassed to wear when you're 30 years old. You got to give yourself permission to try a lot of things and be a lot of different people at yes. that stage in your life, right? So that was very That's helpful great. perspective. Alice Bonner told me when I got out of grad school and got a job in Danville, Illinois, as a cartoonist. You know, in 1985, 86, there were so few people of color in newsrooms that I really wouldn't be serving anyone if I just went to a job where I was sitting in my office doing my cartoon and going home. That I was going to have to willingly be engaged to help do more in newsrooms, be more present, and be more of a leader. And so she threw down the gauntlet in a way that just ultimately became my career path. Yeah. And then Amanda Bennett gave me a piece of advice when I was 40, 41, and it was really didn't have much to do specifically with 
career. It had everything to do with just life in general, mm-hmm. which is it's going to work out. You just don't know how. That's what you're yeah. It's going to work out. You just don't know how yet. And you have to be good with that. And that was uh, really powerful advice because in the end, no matter what you have your heart set on, advice actually came when my wife and I were trying to start a family. It may seem bleak at the moment. It may not seem like the path that you thought you'd be heading on, but it's going to work out if you stay open to it. You're writing your own story in real time. Yeah, and uh, nice. I've given that advice as much as possible because it's most, maybe the most profound thing anybody ever said, particularly in a moment where I really needed to hear it. So I, yeah. I just always count those three women as being as, as showing up in my 20s and my 40s at the perfect time. And speaking of age, you mentioned about the awful in between when you're getting out of grad school or undergrad, 21 to 32, maybe having that first or second job and folks above you are senior. But then there's also a segment of folks that are after 30. So is that an awful in between as well? And how do those people kind of make transitions into the next step? Well, I haven't really phrased that period of time. I mean, if I had to on the fly, I would call it the rough and tumble. (laughs) R&T. Yeah. The awful in between is when you're like, I was a kid and I was getting straight A's and everything. And now I'm in the real world and I'm kind of starting over and I'm watching everybody have what I would view as real lives as opposed to me working late shifts and not making a lot of money and trying to figure out who I am. In the rough and tumble period, you start to get an idea of who you are. You start to get an idea of what you don't like. You start to get an idea of you know, your own internal timetable, and you start getting bigger assignments. You get bigger opportunities to make big moves. You also get bigger opportunities to make big mistakes. But it's a, it's a period of time where you start developing the right kind of skills and the right kinds of calluses that you need as you go forward. And it's also, for many of us, it's that period of time where we actually get to be on the doing side because those folks have then gone to being managers or leaders, kind of lose that ability to touch uh, stories or touch product in real time. Uh, and some people never leave that space. But the rough and tumble period is a very exciting period because you have much more of a sense of what you've gone through in the past that you're not going to repeat mm-hmm. and a lot of excitement about, you know, what's possible there. But at the same time, you're kind of like, by the way, I'm not a kid anymore, so don't treat me like a kid. I got a point of view, you know, and, <laughs> right. and in my life, in my real life, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get things underway. I'm trying to find a life partner. I'm trying to start a family. But in the rough and tumble, you have different expectations. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think that that's a, a really vivid, vivid time. It's also kind of one of those last full periods where you're going to gleefully work 19, 20 hours on a story or a piece before it starts to intrude on a life that you're establishing outside of your career, you know? So yeah. you get a lot done in the rough and tumble. You really do. So you mentioned as we talk about different stages of your career, that it's not utility, it's wonder that we're in the wonderful business and be present in that journey. So for folks who are listening, who may just be starting out, you know, not even in the awful in between yet, but let's say college still and listening to, oh my goodness, Rob King, he's over all of these things at ESPN. How can I do that? What do I need to be doing and thinking in high school and undergrad and even outside of the school setting to position myself for the things that I think I might want? So what you're referring to, I actually said, we actually have to strike the balance between utility and wonder, which yeah. is like anytime somebody reaches for their phone or somebody reaches for their remote, they've got a limited amount of time for the experience. Mm-hmm. And either they're looking to find out the answer to something or the time something starts or, you know, what just happened, which is a very much a utility thing, or they're reaching to say, take me away from where I am right now. I'm going to go into ah, social and see what my, all my friends are doing. I want to see a funny video. I want to share something that 
surprises me, right? So That's good. we're in that balance. That's ultimately the interesting business. It's a mixture of utility and a mixture of wonder. For folks who are younger who are trying to figure out what they're into, I think the surest path here is ultimately like do what gets you excited. Yeah. You know, I mean, too many people sort of jump into a form of I'm going to write news stories because ultimately I want to be this journalist. But I'm telling you, or I'll give you another example. There's a lot of people that who get into visual arts in media who are designing magazines or newspapers or doing photography. And I tell you, 85% of those people have a guitar. You know, um, you know, you, you talk to writers, like 60% of them got a book project going yes, yes. or want to write poetry or what have you. And they're not doing the thing they really want to do. Mm. So when you're younger, anyway, when you're 15, 16, 17, I would ask that you devote at least half the time to what really excites you. Because if you get better and if you get stronger at the thing that really excites you, it's going to inform the other stuff. People feel this pressure appropriately to try to figure out whether or not there is even a journalism day job to be had down the line. But we never wonder when we reach for our phone that there's going to be something interesting or silly or surprising or enlightening or these days enraging that's going to engage our emotions, right? And people are making this stuff left and right. I don't know. I mean, like I, I view what my son and my daughters are doing in terms of how they spend time with media and the amount of time they spend reading books and the amount of time they spend buying skins on Fortnite and what have you. And then yeah. I talk to them about what it is they want to do. Invariably, they want to do more of what they love to do. My son wants to create video games, you know, That's and awesome. he understands that in order to do that in a way that really matters, he's got to care about the story. Sure, um, sure, sure. You know, my daughter likes well, my youngest daughter is writing chapter books. And my middle daughter can't read enough books. She reads like, she's like Evelyn Wood. She just reads and That's reads awesome. and reads. And so some of this gets down to, I want that to be what fills them and encourages them. And then I want them to figure out a way to connect it to how they communicate with the world and then find out what would move them to think, and think about a career. The one who writes chapter books, she's written a series of chapter books from the point of view of a family dog. No right? way. How old is like, she? Yes. She's just turned 10. Oh, right? wow. Congrats. And so what does she want to be? She wants to be a vet. She oh, wants to be cute. a vet. She knows she wants to be with animals, and she's, you know, she got it in her head. Yeah. So, you know, when we start talking about people who spend time in the media space, yeah. what I mostly ask people is what kind of stories do you want to tell? What stories move you? What do you consider yourself uh, part of in terms of an audience? And who are you trying to nourish with what you do? Especially when you're young, that's where you need to spend most of your time. Yeah. There's plenty of craft that you can apply to some of this other kind of stuff. But, like, I'm inspired by seeing, you know, young journalists who, who are moved by the notion that the way in which we tell stories about their communities mm -hmm. is outdated yes. and not heard by the people that we're trying to reach mm -hmm. and not, certainly not appreciated by the people whose lives we're trying to improve. When they are passionately moved to do that, they will mm -hmm. be great journalists whether or not they're doing it for an established newspaper or a network or in podcast form. Absolutely. And that's what I'm trying to encourage. What moves you? What would move you to do this irrespective of getting a paycheck? But I also want to ask you a bit about the business side of ESPN. So I was reading in the Times that the ESPN app has like 70 million downloads and 2 million active users daily. Is the ESPN plus the new uh, streaming process or ability, is that uh, as further along as you are wanting it to be and how are things looking in that respect? We launched it in April and okay. it's doing really it's doing really, really well. We're okay. not 
specific about numbers, but we're very happy with how it's progressing. Okay. And we're early on. We've done a lot of work to make it a really entertaining experience. You know, as you and I are talking today, we spent from about 10 o'clock till about 1 o'clock or about 2 o'clock with Tiger Woods playing on ESPN Plus. You can't get any, <laughs> you can't have a better experience than that if no, you can't. like me, a golf fan. So we've got people in every, virtually every corner of our company working to make it as great an experience as possible. It is, you know, a partner to what we're doing on the app in general. And then yeah. certainly, you know, we've had video streaming for quite some time. Because if you are an authentic cable subscriber, sure. you get to see everything we're doing on air and then in the digital space. Anyway, so it's a real nice compliment to what we're doing right now. And, you know, we're learning. We're learning about this business and we're learning about the different kinds of content. And we're very optimistic. It's going real well. Is the goal to attract new users to the ESPN app where ESPN Plus is housed or the goal to get folks who are not even familiar with the app or its capabilities to the platform? The goal is ultimately to get people to spend time with all forms of ESPN because, I mean, you can also experience ESPN Plus using a Roku device or an Apple TV device, but we've really figured out a way for it to be a terrific digital streaming experience. The goal really is, though, to just make sure that we're as as, uh, present as we can possibly be where sports fans consume content in the digital space. And... um, as I said, four months in, we're learning a lot of stuff. We're okay. really happy with how we've already connected with uh, a good portion of the audience, and, and we're looking to keep it going. And so, parting words, you said that our craft was about connecting and making sure that those who aren't empowered have the information and power. Do you feel as though you're able to do that currently, and what might you be doing going forward to ensure that? Well, we just have to make sure that as storytellers, we are representative of the audience that we're trying to serve. Mm-hmm. That means, you know, we're connected to fans. We're connected to what it means to be somebody who consumes media in this day and age. It means serving sports fans wherever they are and however they need us. It means, you know, doing it with intelligence and nuance, smart reporting, asking the right questions. It means making sure that ESPN maintains that relationship that it's always had in terms of connecting fans with the teams and players they love in a way that is, you know, genuine and engaging. So I do believe that, you know, our best days are ahead of us. I mean, I think we're smarter technologically than we've ever been. We have an incredible CTO. We've got incredible developers. we got a lot of knowledge. we spent a lot of time working with a lot of data insights that are coming from mm-hmm. many, many sources. We hear from our fans. The social space allows us to speak directly with our fans. And we ourselves are sports fans. So, you know, I'm very bullish on our fans. (laughs) I like that. It is a great thing that you're doing. And um, it's great to be able to to talk with you about it a little bit more in depth. And I thank you for making time to talk with me. It is my pleasure. Thanks so much to today's guest, Rob King, for joining us and giving us such valuable insight. Such an incredible roadmap into what you can do to get where you want to be and also how he got to his role as senior vice president at ESPN and the pivotal moments that led him there. That was such an awesome interview. If you missed our premiere episode with actor, comedian, author Michael Collier, download that today. Michael Collier talks to Pivotal Moment about the moment in person that helped him beat his 23-year addiction to cocaine. If you haven't already, also Listen to our talk with former Chicago Bears and Tampa Bay player Major Wright. He talks to Pivotal Moment about what happened when he was just seven years old. 
that led to a career in the NFL. Also, we've got upcoming episodes that are new with Dr. Kelly Richmond Pope. Dr. Pope is the creator and executive producer of All the Queen's Horses. It's a documentary just picked up by Netflix. She tells us how one question, just one, eventually opened the door to Netflix and so much more. You do not want to miss our guests and you do not want to miss their stories. These stories, they really remind us that where we are and where we want to be is within reach. That is the point of Pivotal Moment. That is the focus of Pivotal Moment. That is what our guests are sharing with us and that is what we are bringing to you. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of our movement. I'm your host, Nikita Faustin. We will talk to you soon.